Hey, grab your Bibles, open them on up to Hebrews chapter 4, and I am going to invite Emily up to read that for us. Why don't you, uh, I know this is annoying, can you stand back up and let's read it together, Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when, he, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of God. Father, we just acknowledge this morning that this is your word. God, we ask that you would give us eyes not only to see you and not only to discern truth, but God, we also pray that you would give us soft hearts Lord, I need this text. I've needed it all week. I was so excited, Lord, to share it with my family. I'm so thankful for what this passage tells us about you, Jesus. I pray this morning that this would really change the way that we follow you, change the way that we interact with you. God, that we would see the resources that we have in you, Christ, our priest. Lord, please speak in spite of me this morning to your people. Jesus, you are the chief shepherd. You are our lead pastor. God, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat, you guys. Amen, amen. I think one of the most difficult parts about following Jesus is when you realize <clears throat> that the sin patterns that you had before you became a Christian sort of followed you into your new life. You know what I mean? Like the stuff that you thought you were done with, the stuff that you thought you were dead to, the mistakes and the brokenness that you repented of when you got saved, it, it, it didn't just go away overnight. This, this thing of, of failing and struggling, right, just continues 
on. It's, it's one of the hardest things I think for Christians to have to swallow and to cope with is the reality that even though I've been forgiven and even though I'm saved and even though I've found this riches of Christ and his goodness, I still struggle struggle with weakness, a struggle with sin, a struggle with brokenness, a struggle, struggle with tribulation. And sometimes the hardest thing to know uh, how to do as Christians is how to struggle, how to fail, how to be weak. You know, Christians are really good at giving testimony about what they did before they got saved. But it's not so easy to talk about the stuff that we struggle with after we got saved, right? Whenever I ask someone to do their testimony, I always challenge them on that. Say, don't stop when you prayed the prayer. We need to hear about God's grace in the present, right? God's sanctifying grace. And, and because Christians don't talk about that, it sort of feels like, you know, maybe I'm the only one that's still struggling. Maybe I'm the only one that really needs grace in these areas. Flip really quick. Keep your finger in Hebrews. We're going to do our work there today, but just flip to John 15. I want to start here because I think these passages connect. Jesus is getting ready in this John chapter 15. He's getting ready soon, within hours, to leave this earth, to, to go to the cross um, and, uh, and be in the, the grave for three days. And he's trying to prepare his guys, his disciples. He's trying to prepare them for what they need to know and what they need to think about before he leaves. And so that's kind of the backdrop of John 15. Here's what he says, John 15, 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says it again emphatically, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Yes. Nothing. Do you think Jesus is being emphatic enough? I mean, I could keep going. He's saying the same thing to these guys over and over again. You're a branch, I'm the vine. If you want to bear fruit, what do you do? You have to abide in me. You have to hold on to me. Why is Jesus so emphatic in this? Why is Jesus hammering this home right before he goes to the cross? Because he knows the sheep are going to scatter, right? He knows they're going to be scandalized by this thing that Jesus is going to do, that he's going to, as the Messiah, he's going to go be crucified. And he knows that, that their propensity as followers, as disciples, as humans, is to do two things, is to one, hold loose, and two, to draw back. He knows that their propensity as humans is to do those two things, to hold on loosely and to draw back. And because of that, he tells them, you have to hold on to me, he says. Not just to anything, but to me. You have to hold on. You have to hold on to you. You have to abide. That's the whole idea Jesus is trying to get at. Now, this idea is exactly, go back to Hebrews, it's exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to convey to his audience here in our text. Hold fast, draw near. This is the, ide uh, the, uh, the idea that he's trying to get at. 
The burden of our passage is to bring the audience to a place of confidence that Jesus can, in fact, deliver us in the midst of our struggle, our temptation, our tribulation, and all of these things. The, the burden of our passage is to get the hearer to a point where they have confidence, not only in God's saving grace when you were saved, but in God's present grace after you were saved. The burden of our passage is to get us and all who would read it to see that God has created a means of grace for us to struggle and to come out victorious. And that means of grace is not a thing, it's a person, and it's the person of Jesus Christ who is our high priest. Note those words, high priest. That's the primary theme of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus has taken on this eternal form as our high priest. And that's what our, our passage is about this morning. Our question that we're going to try to run after this morning is how can we be confident that we will truly get to the end in spite of our sin and brokenness and, and weakness? How does God dispense grace when we're struggling and how can we face sin and be victorious? These are the kind of questions that we're going to run after today. And the answer is that we need to see Christ, our high priest. He is our path to grace in our present struggle. Okay? So our sermon, this is going to be real simple. We're going to look at two things. First of all, we're going to look at the qualifications of Jesus as our high priest. So if you're a note taker, if you're an outliner, we're going to look at the qualifications. There's eight qualifications, eight reasons why you should see Jesus as your high priest. Okay, we'll work through those. And then secondly, after we look at the qualifications of Jesus, we're going to look at the implications of Jesus as our high priest. So the qualifications and the implications. In other words, why is Jesus the high priest? And secondly, what should that drive us to do and cause us to do? That's kind of <clears throat> the outline we're going to look at this morning. Now, if you remember, the temptation of the audience that this, this letter is being written to was to draw back from the person of Jesus back into what? Back into Judaism. Maybe we can still, they would say, maybe we can still worship God and, and not have to go through the person of, of Jesus Christ. Now, why were they tempted to do this? The reason they were tempted was because persecution and struggle was beginning to become a regularity for the church. So more and more, it's getting hard and difficult to follow Jesus. And they're thinking, you know, maybe we can still be faithful to Yahweh and not go through Jesus. So the book itself, the letter of Hebrews, is prosecuting this fact that you cannot let go of Jesus. He is the only high priest. And he's superior to every aspect of the old covenant. That's sort of the idea. Now, having said that, let's start looking here in our text at the qualifications of Jesus, our high priest. So, like I said, there's going to be eight. <clears throat> I'll try to remember to <clears throat> give them to you as we go. Let's dive right in. Verse 14. It says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, this is perhaps one of the most important verses in the entire book of Hebrews. Many commentators agree that this is actually a good, probably the summary sentence or the summary verse of the entire book. Because really, the, 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 the primary theme is the priesthood of Christ, and the primary call is to hold fast to Christ. So it's a pretty important Verse And in this verse, we find the first qualification of Jesus as our high priest. If you want to write it down, the first reason he's qualified is because he has passed through the heavens. It says, since we have a high priest who has passed through 
the heavens. Well, what does that mean that Jesus has passed through the heavens? The technical term for it is the ascension. Can you say ascension? Okay, that's when Jesus, after he was resurrected and he met his guys on, on the mount, right? He, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, right? He was carried up in a cloud, and, 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 then, and then he said he would return in the same way. That's the ascension. Okay, now the idea is that Jesus is qualified to be our priest because he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, you might be asking the question, why does his ascension make him qualified to be our priest? I'm glad you asked. There's a few reasons. First of all, the ascension proved that Jesus was capable of entering into the throne room of God. The moment Jesus left this earth and went to the right hand of the Father, he took his humanity with him. He forever opened up the veil, the connection that had once been blocked between man and God had now been reopened in the person of Jesus Christ. So three things that the ascension does. Number one is access. The ascension gave us access to the Father. And what did Jesus do when he ascended? was the first thing he did. He sent the Spirit. He sent the Spirit so that now God is dwelling within man. Okay, we are now filled with his Holy Spirit. So the ascension did that. The other thing the ascension did was it gave or it proved Jesus' authority. Jesus didn't just go to heaven to go to heaven. He went to heaven to take his place at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father was the place of all authority and sovereignty. That means that Jesus is not stuck down here without power. He is sovereign over all, above all. I also want you to note the word accomplishment. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did he sit down? Because the work of atonement was what? Finished. This is good news. So the first qualification that the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that we can trust Jesus as our high priest because he went into the true holy of holies. Did you know that the temple and the tabernacle, they were models. They were like toys. They were like model trains. You ever model trains when you were a kid? Okay. Uh, the, the temple was actually, and Hebrews tells us this later, the temple was actually just a, almost like a toy version of a real place. You know there's a real holy place? You know, there's a real holy of holies. You know, there's a real mercy seat in heaven. The temple was simply meant to remind us of that reality. Now, that doesn't mean that God's presence wasn't truly behind the veil, but it was simply a model. What Jesus did is he didn't just go into an earthly temple. He didn't just go into Herod's temple. He went into the real temple and did business. He went in there and made atonement and actually tore the literal veil. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is qualified to be our high priest because he once for all went into the true temple and to the true presence of God, ripped the true veil, and has now given true access to God's people in the heavens. Isn't that cool? It's incredible. And the author of Hebrews here seems to think that that's the reason we should have great confidence. Here's a, a sentence you can remember. Jesus' incarnation, that's when he came to earth. Jesus' incarnation was God coming to man and Jesus' ascension was bringing man to God. Where does it say that we are seated right now? We're seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So the ascension is incredibly important in this ministry of the priesthood of Christ. Now remember, these guys, these, 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 these Hebrews, these Jewish Christians, their temptation is perhaps to, to, to divorce themselves from Christ and go back to Judaism. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here is he's saying, if you, if you do that, you're going back to the model trains. 
You're forsaking the reality that the real Jesus went into the real temple and made real atonement and opened up the real veil. Don't do that. He's saying, hold on to your confession. The ascension is something we don't talk about very often in Christianity. Uh, and, and for some reason, the resurrection always seems to be the, the main deal. But the ascension really was the capstone of the, of the resurrection. Jesus didn't go to heaven. He's not ruling and reigning. He hasn't sent the spirit. That was an incredibly important part of the gospel. Remember when Mary saw Jesus at the tomb and she didn't recognize him? And, 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 and in that, that very sort of um, endearing way, Jesus spoke her name and she recognized Jesus and she immediately clings to him. And what does Jesus say in that moment? He says, don't cling to me. I must ascend to the Father. Must. It's a critical piece. Jesus needed to go to the right hand of the Father. So if you're writing it down, just number one, the first qualification of Jesus, he passed through the heavens. I'll look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Actually, it says weaknesses, <laughs> which is fitting for me. Uh, multiple weaknesses, okay? He's able to sympathize. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now we'll come back to verse 16. I want you to cue in here on verse 15. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus chose to put on weakness for a purpose. Have you ever thought about that? Like why would Jesus, second person of the Trinity, fully God, preexistent, creator of the universe, why would Jesus choose to leave heaven and to put humanity on over his divinity and live in weakness and struggle and pain, why would he do that? It's actually one of the, the greatest mysteries, I think, of God. William Barclay, the commentator, he notes, he says, the Stoics, that's a sort of a, a brand of Greek philosophy, the Stoics argued that the very essence of God's being and nature was that God was beyond all feeling. Okay, that was a very Greek-minded kind of way to think that the gods, didn't, they didn't feel like humans felt, right? The Epicureans, that's the other group uh, of Greek philosophers, the Epicureans held that the gods lived in perfect happiness and blessedness, detached from and unaware of the world. The Jews had their different holy God. Um, the attributes of God led them to think that he could not really sympathize with them. Now listen, and it's into this world of thought that Christianity came. A religion in which it is completely incredible, this completely incredible conception of a God who has deliberately undergone every human experience. Do you understand how counterintuitive Jesus coming into this world to suffer is to so many? How ungodlike of him, right? Gods are defined as those who don't have to suffer, right? Because they, they stay in a place of comfort. Yet Jesus, who was fully God, came into this world to suffer, to take on weakness, to take on suffering. Why would he do this? Well, the answer is right here. The answer, one of the reasons he would do this is so that he could become a relatable high priest for us so that he could have solidarity with us. What does that mean? It means that he understands what it is to be weak and it means that he understands what it is to be tempted. Now, people wrestle with that a little bit, right? Was Jesus really tempted? I mean, he was, after all, God, right? Was he just pretending to be tempted? Was he, was he really tempted? Was sin actually tugging at him? And, of course, the answer is yes. In his humanity, he was tempted. 
fully. In fact, Jesus experienced more temptation than you and I will ever understand. This is insane. And so he is qualified to be our high priest because he actually has struggled with sin and came out victorious. He never gave in to sin. So we have confidence in him. Notice that in verse 15, it says he was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. That means though he was tempted, he never failed. Not even in one point. You know, the best coach is not only the one that played the game before, but it's the one that was a winner in the game, right? Who do you want to coach you? You want someone that knows what it's like to play the game, and you want someone that was successful. Jesus is your coach, among many other things, he's also your king, right? But he's your coach in dealing with temptation. And he's the perfect coach because he was successful at it. But he also experienced the full weight of temptation. Now, you might be saying, if Jesus never sinned, then how is he really relatable? I would actually argue that because Jesus never gave in to temptation... That means that he has experienced a greater force of temptation than you and I can even understand. Theologians have explained it this way. If you think of the difference between a large boulder on the beach versus a pebble on the beach, which one takes the most beating from the waves? The pebble is able to move when the wave moves it. The, the, the boulder is steadfast. It never moves. So the boulder takes the full force of the beating of the waves. It's like, which fighter took the greater beating? Was it the one that tapped out or the one that, that went all the way till the end of all the rounds? Jesus experienced more temptation than us because he never gave in. He never succumbed to it, which means that he has more experience in what it actually looks like to, to, to survive and to trust the Lord through temptation than anyone ever has. Now, let me just ask you do, you, do you actually ask Jesus to help you in the midst of, of your temptation, or do you just think of him as someone you can go to when you blow it? This was like, this was like, duh, this week, but I was just thinking about it. I'm like, you know, Jesus just doesn't just want me to be the person that comes in, like, Lord, please forgive me, I, I failed. He's like, come to me first. I'm your coach, I'm your resource, I've done this. He says, I've been tempted, I've actually withstood temptation, and I can help you by the Spirit of God in the midst of that temptation. We just have to come to him. He is our high priest, and this is an active role. So not only does he have the position um, to minister to us, being ascended, he also has the posture to minister to us because he can relate with us and humbly understand what we're struggling with. So number two, if you want to write it down, second qualification, Jesus was successful in fighting temptation, even in human weakness. You guys tracking with me? Nope. All right, let me start over. I'll go back to verse one. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, okay, chapter 5, verse 1 now. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And let me help you, um, you know, understand what's happening here. So the author is transitioning from talking about Jesus for a moment to talking now about earthly human high priests. And the reason he's going to do this is because he wants to show continuity between Jesus and the high priests of old, and he wants to show superiority of Jesus over the high priests of old. So he reminds us of this one truth about the high priests that lived during the time of the old covenant. He says, these high priests were chosen from among, from among the people. Why? Because in order to represent the people, you need to be taken from within the people, right? In order to be a true representative of man, you would need to be 
Man, so Jesus being our high priest, guys, this is huge, follow me, okay, don't lose me. Jesus, in order to truly be our high priest, he needed to become truly man in order to represent man. In order to represent humanity, he needed to become truly human, which is why we believe that Jesus was fully God and truly man. He now represents us as our high priest. So number three, write it down. He has truly become one of us. He's qualified because he's truly become one of us and therefore can truly represent us. He is qualified because he has truly become one of us and therefore can truly represent us. Verse two. He can deal gently with the ignorant. Now, by the way, this is still talking about human high priests here. He can deal gently with the ignorant and with wayward, in the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that human high priests not only have to go in to offer atonement for sin of others, they have to go in and offer atonement for their own sins. Okay, Jesus didn't have to do that because he was sinless. The problem with the high priests, and we read this when you read the Old Testament, is that they were very sinful. We read about Eli's sons, right? Ophni and Phinehas. We read about Nadab and Abihu. There were, there were many priests who were, were very corrupt. Jesus is qualified to be our high priest because he doesn't deal with the struggle of having been corroded by uh, sin. He is the perfect high priest. So even though he can relate with us, he is unlike us enough. Well, let me just give it to you. Number four, write it down. Number four, he's qualified because he is like us enough to relate to us, yet unlike us enough to not fail like us. You know, I found it to be true. They they say, never meet your heroes. Have you heard that? And the reason is because once you meet them, you're disappointed. We, we like to think of these people as somehow being transcendent above the things that we struggle with, right? Our heroes. And then we meet them and we go, oh, you're just like me. It's very disappointing. I, I've had to have the veneer ripped off so many times in my Christian walk where I, I would idolize these Christian leaders or pastors thinking that they were just so much more spiritual, thinking someday I'll be like them. And then I saw their life up close and I went, oh, you're very disappointing. <laughs> I told them that too. He's like, Pastor Ryan, actually, he told me the other day, he said, you know, you sound a lot smarter in the pulpit. I'm like, I know. I was like, if I I had 25 hours to prep for everything I said in life, I'd sound awesome. Most of the time, I'm just winging it, you know? We we meet our heroes, and we have this hope that perhaps they they can relate with us, but that they've transcended the, the demons that haunt us. But here's the problem. There's only one Jesus. And whoever you idolize, you'll demonize, by the way. So don't idolize your leaders. Don't idolize people because you will end up demonizing them. The beautiful thing about Jesus, listen, this is so cool. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he's enough like us to relate with us, but he is enough unlike us that he's not dealing with the same stuff that that controls us. Jesus was victorious over this thing that we know we need to be free of, this sin, this brokenness. He is the ultimate hero in that way. He's the ultimate example in that way. Verse four, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, uh, just as Aaron was, verse five, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him. So the author here is stressing the humility of the position of the priesthood. This is not 
a position that is earned or attained. It's not chosen or solicited. It is supplied and it's appointed by God. God chooses who his priests are, right? He chose Aaron and then he chose the line of Aaron. And his point here is that Christ was the ultimate choice. Follow me. Christ was the ultimate choice of God for the once and final high priest. That's why Timothy says, 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God has chosen his final priest once for all, the one mediator, the one access point, the one way to God the Father, and it is Jesus Christ. God has chosen him. So number five, he's qualified because he was chosen by God to be the only way to God, if you want to write that down. Now, he's going to go on here in verse 5 to quote two Old Testament passages, one out of Psalm 2 and one out of Psalm 110.4. Let's read it. Back up in verse 5, he says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, and here's quoting Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here, the author of Hebrews does like he likes to do. He quotes two Old Testament passages. The first being Psalm 2, which is one of the most famous messianic psalms, particularly surrounding the suffering of Jesus Christ. And he uses it to show that Jesus is, yes, like human high priests, but listen, he's superior in every way to human priests. He is his own category. Why? Because Jesus isn't just a human priest. Jesus is the eternal God, priest, king. He is the son of God. He is high and lifted up above all human priests. He is the priest slash king. And there's a tension there, guys, that we have to learn how to live in. Jesus is our priest, meaning he's, he's sympathetic, he's understanding, he ministers to us, he's looking to serve and, 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 and sort of build into our life. He's also the king of the universe. Read Revelation. Okay? He's our priest and he's our king. He's both things, and we need to live in that tension. And then he brings up this idea of Melchizedek. Now, all you nerds, raise your hand if you've ever studied Melchizedek. Anybody? Yeah, you're reading your Bible, you're like, who's that guy? I'll spend six hours on Google figuring that out. And then you're done, you're like, I still don't know who he is. <laughs> that's, that's Melchizedek. Go, go Google it. Not right now. We're going to spend like two chapters talking about Melchizedek later. So it's, he's, he's a very... Important figure, but let me just suffice it to say this. Melchizedek was a priest that stood apart from the Aaronic or Aaron uh, priesthood. Okay, we saw him come way before the Mosaic Covenant. Let me just read uh, Dr. Constable's quote on this. He says it much better than I can. He says, To appeal to Melchizedek, who is uh, who as the first priest mentioned in scripture, is the archetype of all priesthood. It validates Jesus' priesthood, listen, as different from and superior to the Levitical priesthood. <clears throat> you know, Jesus came from what line? Was it? What was it? Judah? Why didn't he come from the tribe of Levi? If he's our eternal high priest, wouldn't it make sense for Jesus to come from the tribe of Levi? But he didn't. He came from the tribe of Judah. Why? Because he is the king, right? But he's also the priest. So the author of the book of Hebrews says, oh, no, Jesus isn't like Aaron, He's his own category of priest. What category? The Melchizedekian category. If you really want to sound smart, just go around saying Melchizedekian. Actually, people just think you're crazy. They'll be like, what does that even mean? I don't, well, I don't know. It's just the thing we say at church. Um, <laughs> Melchizedekian. Je Jesus is part of a category all of his own. He is, and this is number six, if you want to write it down. 
Jesus is qualified because he is, not, he is not just a priest. He is the unique, divine, and eternal priest king. He's the eternal priest. He fulfills the type of what Melchizedek is in the book of Genesis. Let's keep going. I know this is some confusing material, material but we're working our way through it here. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh... Okay, and that's not flesh like Sark's, like flesh like my sinfulness. That's flesh like just humanity. In the days of Jesus' human life, 33 years of living, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. You remember uh, different times that Jesus prayed in the New Testament? John 17, you could study that. That's called the high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed in John 17. He prayed lots of different times for us. He offered up prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears. Can you think of some times where Jesus cried? Can you think of some times where Jesus cried out in the New Testament? How about the Mount of Olives? Right before he was about to go into the, the Eastern Gate, right? He wept over Jerusalem. How about the tomb of Lazarus, right? He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. How about the Garden of Gethsemane? He wept in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cried out to the Lord, if there be any other way. To him who was able to save him from death, he cried out. He was heard because of his reverence. Now, here's the point, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus, Isaiah calls him the man of sorrows. Jesus struggled. He, he carried not only the weight of humanity, but he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders, Jesus suffered in a very unique way. His suffering was unique. He was suffering was unique because he was innocent, right? He suffered because he was betrayed, though he had never done anything to deserve it. He suffered because he was crucified and endured the wrath of God, even though he was perfect and innocent. And he suffered because he knew that this, this cross was coming. I think, I think Tolkien pictures it well when, when Frodo's carrying the ring and the weight of the ring is increasing as he gets closer and closer to mortar. Jesus was carrying this, this weight of knowing he was going to the cross. He was the suffering servant. He was a man of sorrow, was acquainted with grief. Now, why is the author of Hebrews bringing this up? He's bringing this up because he wants us to see that Jesus' suffering was his schoolmaster in order to teach him obedience. Now, some of you guys might be going, what are you talking about? Jesus had to learn obedience? That's what it says. It says he has to learn obedience. When, when it says that he had to learn obedience, it doesn't imply that he was disobedient. It, it just simply means that Jesus had to learn to grow up in his humanity and fully trust God in every area. The best way I could think to explain it was, was with a Lego set. My son loves Legos. He got some Legos for Christmas. You know, so let's say you get a Lego set, and that Lego set is not yet put together. But every piece is there. Every piece is perfectly where it's supposed to be. It just needs to be put together. Now, would you say that Lego set is flawed because it's not yet put together? No. You would just simply say it's, it's in process. It was designed to be that way. In the same way, Jesus was brought into this world not put together as a human. He, he came in as a baby, and he had to grow up, and he had to learn to obey. Now, that doesn't mean that he was flawed. It doesn't mean that he was sinful. It didn't mean that he didn't trust God. It just simply means that he had to learn to trust God. Why is the author of Hebrews bringing up all these interesting thoughts about Jesus' humanity? And the reason is because Jesus had to learn so he can help us learn as well. That's why he's our faithful high priest. He learned obedience. Now, how did he learn obedience? What does it say? Through suffering. 
hold on, I don't like that. Is there another way? Can I, can I choose the non-obedient or the non-suffering route, please? We don't really like this idea that we have to learn to trust God through suffering, but the reality of the scriptures um, and the reality that's modeled by Christ is that suffering becomes our schoolmaster to have faith. That Jesus, even though he was the son of God, was counted worthy to learn through suffering how to trust and obey God. And you know, Jesus, even though he never strayed from obeying God, and even though he never sinned, he still wrestled with that, didn't he? In the garden, and Lord, is there any other way? That was his humanness, sort of having to deal with that. C.H. Dodds, he said, it is when the child is told to do something which pains him and which he shrinks from that he learns obedience. He learns to submit to another well. So Jesus, in his humanity, had to trust the Father to do things that he didn't want to do or feel like doing in the moment, like suffering, like going to the cross. He had to trust the Father. He had to learn how to walk by faith. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus, the Son of God, had to learn obedience through struggle and suffering, do you think you shouldn't have to? We got to have a good view of suffering. We, we have to. We can't just see it as something that is, is just, a, a, you know, I mean, obviously all sin and brokenness and evil is, 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 a, is a result of sin. But if we can't see that God is actually using our struggles and using our suffering to lead us to a place that is better, a place that has deep rooted faith and mature faith, then we will not suffer well. And as Christians, our greatest witness, I believe, is when we suffer well. When our, our bodies rebel or our families rebel or our lives don't go the way we want and we go, that's okay. God is using that like a refiner's fire to burn away the chaff and to do something greater and eternal. This is how Jesus saw his life. He saw it as something to be learned, something to be grown in and trusting the Father. His sonship, you know, th this, is, this is interesting, by the way. Go back and read when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. You know what he's tempting Jesus with? He's trying to tempt Jesus three different ways with this one idea. Jesus, if you're really the son of God, you wouldn't be suffering right now. That's the temptation. Remember, why are you starving? Turn that rock into bread. Surely if you're the son of God, you wouldn't be starving. He's trying to get Jesus to believe this lie that there is sonship without hardship. And that's a lie. Jesus, the favored one, the anointed one, the second person of the Trinity, God's son was led to suffer for the purpose of his faith being grown and for the glory of God to be seen. Satan's goal with Jesus is the same as it is with us. He wants us to go, you know, if God really loved me, I wouldn't be suffering. It's a lie. It's a lie. There's a connection between sonship and, and suffering. God's love is not seen in the absence of hardship. It is in the midst of hardship when we realize his love. And by the way, suffering for the believer is not a test to see if you are faithful. Suffering for the believer is, listen, it's a test to show that God has been faithful. Let me say that again because it's really important. Suffering for the believer is not a test to see if you are faithful. It's a test to show that God has been faithful. 
It's like the difference between someone testing something, not sure if it's really going to work, versus the craftsman that has absolute confidence that his product will, up, will stand through the test. Suffering isn't to see, oh, am I, am I going to make it? Am I going to do enough to get to heaven? Suffering is a way for God to dis- display and show his craftsmanship through you. That's his faithfulness, not your faith. It's his faithfulness. Now, one more point here. Did I give you number seven? Okay, sorry. (laughs) He earned the right, number seven, he earned the right by learning to fight the fight of trust and obedience. That was number seven. Never do eight-point outlines. They're way too long. Stick with three. I literally thought that this morning. I'm like, what am I doing with an eight-point outline? That was stupid. Okay. I got one more. Verse nine. Being made perfect, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being, desi- uh, being designated by God a high priest, again, after the order of Melchizedek. So again, this idea isn't that Jesus was imperfect, it is that his humanity needed to be fully grown so that his life could become the perfect sacrifice, Jesus needed to live 33 years of perfect faithfulness so that he could give you that 33 years as a gift when you became a Christian. You know, that's what happened. Jesus didn't just take your sin penalty. He didn't just pay your sin debt. He imputed is the word. He gave you his 33-year track record. What a great gift. So Jesus had to live this full life in order to give it as the ultimate source of salvation. Here's number eight. Write it down, then we'll move on. The the, the eighth reason Jesus is qualified. He made and became the ultimate atoning sacrifice. You know, not a single lamb that was slain in the Old Testament was truly sufficient to make atonement for anyone's sin. It was only a picture. It was only a reminder that Jesus would come and be the once-for-all atoning lamb So, this is Jesus, the high priest. This is why he's qualified. He can relate with us. He's passed through the heavens. He is qualified in every possible way. Now, what are the implications of this? Here's where we're going to go back and and get a little more practical. There are two implications in our text. One of the things, by the way, if you're studying the Bible and you're trying to learn how to interpret a passage, one of the things you need to look for are the action words. What are the action words? What are the imperatives? There's two in our passage. First one is to hold fast, and the second one is to draw near. Hold fast and draw near. Let's take those two, and we'll close with them. First of all, hold fast. Look again at verse 14. <clears throat> Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What is confession? That doesn't mean getting in a little booth with a little priest and telling him about your secret little sins. That's not what he means by confession, okay? When he says confession, he means hold fast to what you once said you believed about the person of Jesus Christ, about the gospel. Hold on to that. I loved Pastor Ryan's word for hold fast, white knuckle it. White knuckle it. Hold fast to this confession, this thing that you once declared faith in. Now, I want you to see this is so important. What is it that gives us the ability to hold fast? Read it again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. It is the ascension of Christ that gives us the confidence to hold on. Now, what is it about the ascension? Why does the ascension give us the confidence to hold on is the question. 
I was thinking about, uh, you guys, uh, in, in track, as far as I understand, or in cross country, as far as I understand it, I didn't do cross country, but as far as I understand it, it's the first four runners that their score matters. And then it's the last runner. You ever seen McFarland? That's the only reason I know this. And McFarland, there's a guy that's slower. Um, in that movie, if it's true, the first four runners are all that really matters for the score, right? And then the last runner, you just got to cross the finish line. Now, how much more confident are you as the slow runner? And yes, I'm sorry, you're not the hero of the story. That position's already taken. It's Jesus. You're the slow runner. I'm sorry. Okay, how much more confident are you to cross the finish line if you've already been told that your team has been victorious and that all you need to do is hold on? This is the idea that the author of Hebrews is trying to say, hold fast. Why can I hold fast? Because Jesus already has been victorious. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has been victorious over sin and death, and he is seated. Now, by the way, you might be asking the question, wouldn't, if Jesus is really our priest, shouldn't he be here? Shouldn't he be here? I mean, shouldn't he be here physically? You know how I'd answer that? He is. His body is here. Ephesians tells us that you, church, are the physical body of Jesus Christ. He left his body behind, and he sent his spirit to work through his body. And what does Peter say that you are? You're a kingdom of priests. You're a kingdom of little priests who serve the high priest, and God is ministering through that. So it's because he has ascended that we have this great confidence. And this brings us all the way back around to John chapter seven or 15, where we started. Remember, Jesus is trying to talk to his guys. He says, listen, you just need to hold on. You need to hold on. You need to hold on to my victory. You need to hold on to my ascension. Paul says the same thing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 12. He says, fight the good fight. Fight the faith, or fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession. So their loose grip, the author, uh, or the, the audience of Hebrews, their loose grip on Christ is not because of a lack of doing, it's because of a lack of seeing. They're not seeing that they have this high priest that they can hold on to, that he's available, that he's a resource for them as they struggle. They're, they're, they're forgetting that. And so the author of Hebrews is reminding them of that. Hold on, have a tighter grip. The second action word, and we'll close here, the second action word is draw near. Draw near, and this is verse 16. Let's read it again. Because Jesus is our high priest, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help when? In time of need. I don't know if I can adequately do it, but I just need you guys to understand how radically different that would have been to a Jewish audience. This throne of grace, as he calls it, the throne of God, to say that you can confidently draw near it. What was the Jewish experience with the throne of God? You die. Thank you, Dave. And you're not just mostly dead. You're dead. Think about it. Remember Uzzah? Remember Uzzah? David's bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. Woo, everything's great. They put it on an ox cart, which was a mistake. Things starts to sort of bump off. And Uzzah, whose like whole life surrounded around taking care of this nuclear-powered box that was the presence of God, is like, oh, it's going to hit the mud. Reaches his hand out. Thank you. Dead. Bless you. That was perfect timing. I was like, achoo. 
I'm so distracted this morning. It's not even funny. Good grief. What happens when you touch the mountain of God in the wilderness? Dead. Did you know that when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie little bells on his ankles and they'd put a rope around his waist because there was a pretty good chance that the holy and righteous God would be offended by something and they would have to drag him out? Dead. That's the, that's the experience of the Hebrews with the throne of God. God is holy. Man is sinful. God's holiness cannot have part with man's sinfulness. Okay, so this idea of going even close to the temple confidently is bizarre to the Hebrew audience. No, no, no. One man from one tribe, from one nation, goes in one day to offer one sacrifice once a year. That's it. And if we're lucky, we're, we're, we're going to sort of benefit from the, the flow back of that, that work of atonement. That's it. And now here is this author encouraging this Hebrew audience to confidently draw near to the throne, not of judgment, not of death, not of justice, not of, oh no, I just got, you know, nuclear zapped. Grace. The throne of what? The throne of Grace. The picture here now is that the believer in Christ, because Jesus is their priest, can confidently come to the throne and receive grace and mercy, confidently. Kent Hughes, he, he makes a note about the word confidence here. He says, the Greek word confidence has a long and documented history in classical Greek. It denotes, listen, free and open speech of citizens with one another. It means bold frankness and outpouring of the heart. This is the access, guys, that we now have to the throne because of our high priest. And what is it that we come to the throne to get? Help, grace, mercy, win in time of need. We have access. Guys, I know this is familiar to some of you, but you gotta, you gotta shake it off. Like as Christians, we, just, we, we, get, so, uh, we get so accustomed to these huge realities that we're like, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I got it. Like, no, no, listen, you can go confidently into the throne of God through the high priest, Jesus Christ. And there is mercy and grace there. God is a reservoir of kindness and grace and mercy that is just waiting to be poured out to those who will hold fast and press in and draw near. So what Jesus was trying to tell his guys in John 15. He says, I'm the vine I'm the source of grace. You have one job. You're a stick. Just hold on to the vine and fruit will come. That's what we do. We hold on. We hold fast. We draw near. But see, here's the problem. Here's what we do. We sin because we still struggle with sin. And then we go, I can't look at God right now because I'm ashamed. So we put our heads down and we go, you know what? I'll just wake up at six and read my Bible for 20 minutes for the next five days. Then I'll feel good enough to look at the Lord. Guys, that is unbelief. That is actually not taking advantage of the resource of your high priest who is right now at the right hand of the Father wanting you to come to him, not just when you blow it, but before and say, I need mercy. I need grace. Now, help me. Help me struggle. Help me overcome. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to help you. He's, 
He, he's ready to, to give you the resource of grace and of mercy and time of need. You know what, you know what a Christian is? A Christian isn't someone that, that's perfect, that, that, that nails it, that doesn't struggle. A Christian is someone that has a well-worn path back to the throne of grace that they go to every moment of every day. The Christian, of li- the Christian life is repentance. It's repentance. It's God, I just, I'm so in need of your grace that I keep coming back. Peter, in his final epistle, and not young, exuberant, charismatic Peter, no older, wiser, humble, seasoned Peter, he writes to the, the audience in Asia Minor in 2 Peter 3.18, his final words, and his final words are, grow in grace. That is the mature believer. The mature believer is the one who recognizes that he must continue to grow in grace. In whose grace? In God's grace. Must continue to be dependent. God is raising kids who are dependent, not independent. You want to raise your kids to be independent. Get out of here. God wants to raise you to come back to him time and time again because he has grace and he has mercy. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to draw near? Well, let me just give you a few things. It does not just mean to cry out and acknowledge your need. It means that you come to him and you acknowledge that he is the source of what you need. There's a difference. It's one thing to say, I struggle. I have a hard time. This is hard. It's another thing to come to him. And you know the difference. You know the difference. I know the difference. We go to the throne. It doesn't just mean we try harder. It means we let him work and rely on him to do so. It means that we form a neural pathways. You have neural pathways in your mind, a neural pathway directly to the throne of grace of God. You practice repentance. You practice coming back to God in times of need. That's the Christian life. It's the Christian life. So, in summary, I'll tell you, I know that there, was a, there was a lot of text. Let me just sum the whole text up in two sentences. Okay, listen. Our entire text can be summed up this way. Jesus went up so that we can hold fast. Jesus came down so that we can draw near. Do you understand what I mean by that? Jesus went up. Why? So that we can hold fast. Jesus came down, that is the incarnation, so that we can what? Draw near. Jesus went up so that we can what? Jesus came down so that we can what? You need to remember that. When you're, when you're feeling like I don't have a lot of confidence right now, I want you to remember that Jesus went up. He conquered. He's victorious. He ascended. He is high and lifted up. He is ruling and reigning, and he sent his spirit to minister to you. He, he went up so we can hold fast. And he came down so we can draw near. He came down to suffer in the same way that you have to suffer. In fact, even more than you've suffered. He came down to be tempted so that he can relate with you, so that he can coach you, so that he can help you, so that he can have solidarity with you. He came down to the, go to the cross so that he can pay for your sin. And he gave you his perfect life. We can draw near. Isn't that good news? My challenge for you guys this week and for myself is to every morning and every day, continually throughout the day, don't just think of Jesus as who you go to when you blow it. Go to Jesus when you're struggling. Now, immediately, draw near, confident. And when you fail and when you struggle, don't put your head down. Don't look at the floor. Look at Christ. 
He has compassion for you. He has compassion for you. He wants to help you overcome. He's patient. He's kind. Amen? Why don't you guys stand with me? <clears throat> Let's just sing this together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Sing it one more time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. River just ran up to me. What did I do? Seriously, listen to me. What did I do? Did I, did I ignore him? I picked him up. Why did I pick him up? Because I love him. What do you think God's going to do if you go to him right now? He's going to pick you up. Just take a moment of silence. Talk to your father. Talk to your high priest right now. Go to him. Tell him what you need to tell him. Just on your own. Just a moment of silence. so thankful for Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. So thankful for the fact that you didn't leave us abandoned to our own brokenness. That Jesus, you stepped into it. You came and you experienced the full reality of the human condition so that you could lead us and guide us. And this morning, my prayer is simple. I just pray that everyone here at Philippi and everyone here visiting would have confidence that if they're in Christ, we can come to you boldly. And there is grace and there is mercy. Lord, give us that boldness and that confidence. And I know that the way that we know that is to know you better. Because when we know you better, we see your kindness. We see your patience. So I pray what Jesus said to the disciples over us this morning. That we would abide in the vine. And that you would bear much fruit through us that you would abide in us, Lord, and that your word would abide in us and that we would abide in you. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hey, love you guys. God bless. Hope you have a great day.